welcome to the weird but definitely wonderful world of eye-catching words. to the weekly eye-catching words podcast if you're a new listener welcome if you've listened before welcome back this week's episode episode 12 begins with a heartfelt appeal for the victims and indeed the devastated survivors of the earthquake that hit turkey and syria recently this links to the bonus content for this week's podcast which is an hour of music from a recent fundraiser in west london that i was privileged to be a part of The quality of this is variable for technical reasons, but focus on the feelings and the need for all of us to show compassion rather than worrying about the sound quality. There is another gig planned in West London on the 3rd of March, so do check out the eyecatchingwords.blog website for more details and try and come along. So what follows is an appeal from a woman who is half Syrian and half Turkish by birth. You will find this in the bonus content as well as she spoke to us during a break in the music. And I can tell you that everyone was deeply moved by what she had to say. Uh, uh, Hello, everybody. Hi. Uh, Thank you very much for for your help. Thank you very much for this event to help my people. Um, because I'm half from Syria and the other half from Turkey. And my heart cry in the middle. Please, please, we need your help. We need help from everybody because because you know it's so many people that died so many people they stay without uh, everything they don't have anything no places to live no food no medicament nothing then thank you if you can help us thank you Forgive us some hope. We need happiness. We need your help. We need a place to live. We need love. We need your help. Thank you. I want just, I'm I'm, I'm poet, but I'm sorry. I cannot read now anything. But I can say, I'm looking, I'm looking for a place to get lost in it. So, will you lend me your shadow? Thank you very much. Like I say, it was a very moving experience being there. So do check out the website for more details. So moving on to the normal podcast territory, my weird and wonderful musings on whatever happens to pass through my mind. This week we have car stories in Further On Up The Road. We also have 
a short session on why everything you've ever thought of has probably been done before. And lastly, just recalling a great writer by the name of Paul Jennings, who you almost certainly have never heard of, but really, really is a man worth listening to. Further on up the road. Like most families, we have our driving stories. Ours date back into motoring history. My grandfather possessed a car with one of the most wonderful things in the world, or so I thought as a child. Trafficators. Instead of indicator lights, little Bakelite arrows would pop out from a recess above the head of the driver or the passenger if turning left. A family friend had the iconic Ford Anglia, which has to be one of the most wonderful cars ever made. American in shape and styling, but shrunk down in size for the British market. Curiously, a contemporary of mine told me a story of how her father had one, but could not afford to dispose of it. But having access to a JCB, decided to bury it in his spacious back garden. I often wonder if it is still there. Must have been a very big hole. My brother-in-law was, in his youth, someone who wanted to stand out. And as he started to make a little money in his chosen line of business, which was in fact car spares, he bought an imported Oldsmobile with huge leather bench seats and a cocktail cabinet in the back. It was a monster of a car, but fascinating to 10-year-old me. But it was my own brother who tended to have the most interesting experiences with cars. In fact, to my mind, he may have been slightly cursed. Two weeks after passing his driving test in 1965, he borrowed an Austin A35 from a friend. The tyres were totally bald. Tyre tread laws were not introduced until 1968, so they were arguably legal. Driving through South London, he braked behind a bubble car that was turning right. And instead of stopping, the Austin slid gracefully and smoothly along the road like an ice skater. The impact speed was only about five miles an hour, but rather like watching an agonisingly snow snooker ball gliding along the green bays, it was obvious that this was going to be enough to have, quite literally, a knock-on effect. The bubble car rocked back and forth in slow motion, inviting speculation as to whether it would right itself or tip over. It wobbled a little more, and then the camber of the road came into play, dragging the centre of gravity beyond the point of no return. It rolled over, and then began to make its way down the hill, which it had just moments before planned on navigating safely. Down the road it rolled, the people inside turning over and over like clothes in a tumble dryer, with passers-by gawping at them through the glass front window. When it came to a stop, the door was flung open and the passengers emerged miraculously unharmed for the most part, but probably mentally scarred forever. The bubble car was a wreck, dented and caved in like a crumpled drinks can caught in the path of stampeding nightclubbers. My brother looked a little pale when he came home that night.
Many years later, I had something called a Fiat Polski. We called her Doris. It was very similar to a Lada, but heavier. So heavy, in fact, that the steering column couldn't cope. And there was about a quarter of a turn of play in the steering wheel. But it was my first car and I was very fond of it. In those days, the early 1980s, you could quite comfortably drive into the West End from Streatham where I was living with my first wife. We would often park up around Charing Cross or on the South Bank without a care in the world. Now I think of it, Doris probably belched out enough Eastern Bloc pollution in her own right to justify the congestion charge, but that was much later. But she was a very well-behaved car and I never had any trouble with her, apart from the time a windscreen wiper flew off into a hedgerow in the pouring rain and we got soaked looking for it. So when I traded up to something more stylish, I decided to keep it in the family and gave it to my brother. He took it back to Yorkshire with him. One day he rang me up to say there had been an incident. Once again, the hill was involved. My brother lived halfway up a steep street in Keithley and he emerged one morning to find that Doris had let off her handbrake and rolled down the road, gathering speed and turning slightly until she smashed through the doors of the local working men's club. This was an old-fashioned institution and did not admit women, so we decided that it must have been a political act on Doris's part, a woman symbolically breaking down the barriers to progress and challenging the sexism that went with men and beer. These experiences no doubt influenced my brother's decision to create an arts project many years later around the theme of cars. Called My Last Car, it was an interactive project which reflected on the fact that the car as we know it was no longer sustainable. You can find it on the 509 Arts website at www.509arts.co.uk but you might want to start asking family and friends now for their funny car stories. Because motoring as we know it will be a thing of the past soon, as electric vehicles with driverless technology and an incredible array of safety features take over our world. The future will be cleaner, safer, slower and more sustainable, but perhaps also a little blander. So cherish the history while you can. Sheepless in Seattle. A few weeks ago in one of my podcasts I wrote about ChatGPT, the new phenomenon that has sent waves through the world of those who keep an eye on artificial intelligence. This is the software that will write for you and interact with you in spookily interesting and productive and amusing ways. So it's nothing new to me when my brother-in-law rang up last week in an excited state having just discovered ChatGPT. It's actually been around since November and there are others vying for AI top dog status, but ChatGPT is the one that most people go to. He had been using it to generate silly stories about monks falling in love with terrapins. My implicit question, which you will find at the tail end of episode seven of this series, is how people can retain relevance and dignity when so many tasks can potentially be done without them by AI. 
but there is an equally annoying phenomenon that plagues mankind, which I will call sheepless in Seattle syndrome, or CIS for short. It goes like this. The other day, I thought it would be amusing to go in for a bit of wordplay in my podcast and tell a story about a man who goes to Seattle to become a sheep farmer, but can't find any sheep to buy. Hence the title, Sheepless in Seattle. I was looking forward to this exercise, but I thought I would just Google the concept first. To my annoyance, several people had got there first. Someone called Amy Beth Inverness has written a book with the same title about a man who takes sheep to the moon. In Late Night with Seth Myers, Karen Chi and illustrator Johnny Sun play a game about romantic movies and animals called, you guessed it, Sheepless in Seattle. There is an Instagram user who has it for their handle. And most mind-boggling of all, there's an episode of The Simpsons called Sheepless in Seattle, where Marge throws away Maggie's pacifier and Homer gets her a new squeezy toy to keep her amused. Unfortunately, he's kept up all night by it. His doctor prescribes sleeping pills, but Homer wakes up during the night and starts doing strange things. Marge locks him in the bedroom, but Bart helps him escape so that they can have some fun. And they end up crashing into Little Mo Peep's sheep farm, causing all the sheep to escape. The point I'm making is whatever you think of has probably been thought of before by someone else somewhere in the world. Now, before the internet, this didn't matter so much because what you didn't know didn't matter and certainly didn't inhibit your creative process. After all, Isaac Newton and Gottfried Leibniz both invented calculus around the same time in the 17th century without either of them knowing about the other and nobody's going to trash their credentials. But now you only have to Google to see who got there first. So you can throw your hands up in the air and say, I give up, unless you're the kind of person who prefers to say, I will plagiarise. In fact, between AI and the rest of the world getting there first, you're probably screwed. Whenever you have an idea, just forget it. Go back to filming puppies with their head down the toilet and see if you can do that better than anyone else. My brother-in-law was in a paddy because he had asked ChatGTP to tell him what tonight's lottery numbers were going to be. And even though he knew it wasn't going to happen, he had to get the numbers in the mix in case they came up. As the window for putting in your entry was closing in 10 minutes, he rang us because we have a lottery account that could do it for him. AI's got a lot to answer for when it drives people into these kinds of behaviours. He had also used ChatGTP to write some advertising copy for his rug business, but that excited him far less than stories about monks and terrapins or the prospect of winning the lottery. It seems that artificial intelligence may have many positive uses, but none of them will be as attractive as finding new and original ways for simply having a laugh. Perhaps that is mankind's ultimate fate. We will become trivial and amusing rather than extinct. And so to Paul Jennings. Paul Jennings started writing in about the mid-1940s and I can only describe him as a kind of British James Thurber, maybe not quite so surreal and certainly much more traditional in terms of his choice of subjects. These often 
talked about the uniquely British experience like trying to get a drink in a theatre bar or going into a country pub or learning how to play a board game when you only had instructions in German. Paul Jennings for me is a kind of hero and it wasn't quite recently that I realised that in some ways I channel him myself when I'm trying to write. I'm not as funny but I do feel his spirit moving me when I go into my more outlandish places. It surprises me that he's not better known today, but then he was a uniquely 20th century, second half of the 20th century writer. He wrote for Punch and he wrote for The Spectator and even for The Telegraph magazine. Now let's not hold some of those things against him. They were much more broadly based churches in the old days. But to give you a sense of just how large in stature he was, in his time. The Times obituary described him as one of the most consistently original comic writers of the 20th century. Here he is talking about his experience of walking down Victoria Street in the late 1950s. It is not often one has a chance to dawdle in Victoria Street, Southwest One. For one thing, one is usually on one's way to Victoria. For another, it is always cold there, except in deepest July and August. There is a curious air of a perpetual Sunday morning in an Edinburgh suburb about those gaunt black buildings. Victoria Street is a kind of geological formation, a miniature Grand Canyon with a restless, dusty Sirocco of its own. One stops to look in some excellent shop window and this evil wind blowing sand and bits of old government posters drives one shiveringly on. What really strikes me about that is the economy of his words, the wonderful images he's managed to summon up that any Londoner who's ever walked down that particular street will immediately recognise, perhaps not so much today when the buildings have been replaced by towers of glass and metal, but not that long ago. And certainly there's quite a few of those dusty little shops that he refers to. Take this example for as an example of his writing about what it's like to do Christmas shopping and how you always seem to end up buying bath salts. Now bath salts may not be something which young people today would recognise but in my history probably until well into my 30s it always seemed to be that someone bought bath salts for you for Christmas. This is his account of Christmas shopping. You have had an exhausting, but on the whole, successful day. You've got wonderfully appropriate presents for A, B, C, and your power of creative choice was still working when you got to the non-stick saucepan, just right for X. The wind-up toy, a bear in a chef's hat that tosses an egg, nodding furiously as it does so, that pleases you, never mind whether it pleases child Y who will receive it, and the well-chosen record for Z. But now this power is rapidly declining in you. It is five past five. The car is parked miles away and you are very tired. Suddenly you remember this aunt, this friend at work, this neighbour. Bath salts you think wearily. But one of my favourites, because I love London so much, and because Paul Jennings was a London writer, goes as follows. 
One reason why London no longer contains Dickensian characters, apart from the fact that it never did, there never been people quite so much larger than life as Mr Jingle or Dick Swiveller, is that nowadays so few people work in the small localised world that is the fruitful soil of character. It was all right for an ostler in the atmosphere of a coaching inn, but he wouldn't be able to ostle today. He would probably work for London Transport with 87,000 other people, all of whose characters seemed to have been drawn off, as it were, to feed the giant, diffuse, half-felt personality of modern London itself. Remember, we started talking about the spirit of London only after the Blitz. The red buses are the red corpses in London's bloodstream, and taxes, I am sure, are the antibodies, cross little black things, turning round sharply against the general flow. Now that is what I call writing. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed some of the material and I hope in particular you feel motivated to do something about the Syria-Turkey earthquake appeal that I mentioned earlier. Uh, in the coming weeks, I hope to see a marked increase in the technical quality of these podcasts, not least thanks to the advice and guidance of Mr S from Labrook Grove, who has given me generously of his time and whose offer I shall take up in future to polish my turds. I leave you with a brief account of the night that Paul Jennings entertained James Thurber to dinner. He told a wonderfully funny story about those hectic jazz age days when he and his first wife went out to a restaurant with a friend who had recently married a Turkish girl. During the evening someone vomited over a balcony, unfortunately on this girl. Her husband said, you know, it's a terrible thing for a Muslim girl to be vomited on. My first wife said, American girls aren't that crazy about it either. Good night. Have a great week.